0: Informing America's farmers and ranchers, it's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you for joining us. Hope you're having a good day. A special... Welcome to the listeners of KOKK in Huron, South Dakota, our new affiliate here with Adams on Agriculture. Welcome aboard. Glad to have you with us. Coming up today, we're going to learn more about soybean cyst nematodes, and we're going to talk with Greg Tilka, an Iowa State nematologist, get the very latest on that, some things you may not be aware of. Uh, Phil Brasher with AgriPulse is going to join us for the latest on uh, the Senate Farm Bill vote and what's going on in the House with immigration. And former Secretary of Agriculture, former Senator from Nebraska, Mike Johans, will join us for his perspective on the farm bill and on trade. But first, we have breaking news. Joining us now is the national energy reporter for Reuters, Jarrett Renshaw, joins us. Jared has some uh, new reporting that he has released and uh, on the RFS waivers. Jared, thanks for joining us. Uh, tell us uh, what you have learned. Kind of the, the curtain has been pulled back a little bit. You've got to look behind there for us. Oh, we lost him. Jared is actually traveling, and we just lost connection, so we're going to try to reconnect with him. But uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and set it up a little bit. Uh, what they have learned, Jared and others uh, in their reporting, uh, more about – how EPA came to these um, decisions on granting waivers to the RFS and we had been told that these decisions were made jointly between EPA and the Department of Energy but now we're finding out that uh, is not the case and that EPA has gone against recommendations uh, by the Department of Energy and gone on their own to make some of these uh, decisions and determinations. So let's uh, join Jarrett Renshaw now with Reuters. Jarrett, thanks for joining us. I was just explaining yeah, some of this reporting that you have. Uh, tell us, tell us more. What have you learned now?
2: Sure. So I'm sorry if some of this is redundant. So essentially, uh, what we report today is that the the Department of Energy, who uh, who advises and recommends what to do with these uh, these exemptions, had recommended partial or even no uh, waivers, um, and the EPA took those recommendations and, and granted full waivers instead. So essentially, in the past, what we had happened was the waivers would get, some would get approved the full waivers, some would get denied, some would get partial. Um, under this current administration, all partial and even some rejections get turned into full waivers. So that helps explain, in my, in my mind, at least some portion of the uptick in the number of exemptions.
1: Okay, and we're having a little trouble. I know you're on a cell and you're traveling, so we're having a little trouble hearing you at times. But, again, uh, what you have reported now is this EPA uh, has gone against recommendations or beyond the recommendations of the Department of Energy in the past uh, as far as uh, what refineries get exemptions. And even if the Department of Energy recommended a partial exemption, EPA may have gone ahead and given a full exemption. Is that correct?
2: That is correct, Uh, 100%. So that is exactly what our reporting shows. And and it's a departure from the previous administration, which I think is important, where those partial recommendations um, either got denied or implemented as partial or some got approved.
1: And also, doesn't it uh, uh, go against what we have heard from Administrator Pruitt, in the past is he when he has said that he makes these decisions you know in cooperation and in conjunction with the department of energy
2: it it certainly raises the questions of whether pruitt was using the, the department of energy as cover for his decisions and doing that fairly uh you know the truth is the epa's interpretation of partial exemption may be a full exemption so therefore. If you're giving Pruitt the benefit of the doubt, he's relying on that broad interpretation and therefore can, you know, his comments would then hold hold up against some scrutiny. Clearly, that's not what he was, he wasn't trying to thread the needle on that. He was clearly giving the, the impression that the DOE and the EPA are in lockstep, which is clearly not the case.
1: We're talking with national energy reporter for Reuters, Jarrett Renshaw, and Jarrett, it seems like Administrator Pruitt does this a lot. It, 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 it's his interpretation of, uh, of something that seems to be different from uh, so many other people, and that's kind of what we have here. He, he, he sounds like he has left himself some wiggle room for protection, even though almost everyone else seems to interpret what he's been saying differently.
2: For sure. You know, sometimes the truth is not even that bad, right, for some. Right? I mean, he, he, he can presumably could defend the, how his interpretation of the partial waivers, right? And uh, I, I think we're all grown-ups, and he could, he could explain that, um, and I think fairly, and give some context to the court rulings. And, and, and But I think using the broad explanation as a defense when you're speaking on the road to, to people you're trying to carry some favor with, I don't think, and now they, they think you've been lying to them, I, I don't think that's obviously a good strategy in hindsight.
1: What else have you turned up in your reporting on this?
2: Well, I think the one interesting thing, obviously, the partial waivers are, are interesting, but I would like to know who got the full exemption. Um, we, we, our reporting shows that DOE uh, denied one, and uh, the EPA in turn gave that to a, a full exemption after the company provided EPA some 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 additional information. Uh, certainly, it would be curious to find out who that who that company was. Um, and then secondly we uh, we reported we don't know the size of how many partial exemptions were recommended and it eventually turned into full, but we do know the name of one and that was Endeavour, which is the you know, a company that reported one point four billion dollars in profits last year. Um, clearly there was a lot of a lot of concern when we heard that they got the exemption. I think those those concerns will grow now that we learned that they were recommended for a partial, and CPA turned them into a full. Um Especially in, in, in light of the fact that the EPA has uh, given partial exemption, we had known at least one occurrence. So um, you know, there was concern whether Endeavor justly got one. And I think the fact that the DOE recommended a partial and the EPA gave them a full increases the scrutiny on, 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 on that particular case. Um, but I think that you now the public should know more about uh, this process and how this how many the DOE partial and how many turned into full. I think you know, the, the scale
1: of it probably matters, too. Just a minute left here, Jared, but what this shows is an EPA acting on its own, Administrator Pruitt acting on its own. Uh, obviously, with your reporting, he's not always going with what the Department of Energy recommends, even though he has said he's working with them. We've heard him say before he's working closely with USDA. We've heard Secretary Perdue uh, be critical of these waivers. So obviously he's not in lockstep with these other agencies.
2: Import of, of our story today, I believe, and so we, although we don't we don't get there fully, I think it's further evidence that Pruitt is not alone, but certainly carrying out his own policy um, on this particular issue. Uh, there's no doubt that these types of decisions, right, who, how you deal with the DOE recommendations, go up to the top of the, the food chain of the EPA. No one can imagine that those kind of decisions are being made by mid-level career staff. So, I, I do think, you know, Pruitt's handling of this uh, has has concerned some, and I think these types of stories um, deserve even more scrutiny and and and, 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 and more uh, more answers. Unfortunately, it is a program that is shrouded in secrecy, and, and hopefully, the public gets some more explanation of the decision-making process. Um, the motivations and and, and all of the above. I think uh, we'll all be well-served by
1: that. Well, Jarrett, you've given us a great insight, great reporting. Thank you very much.
2: Hey, thank you. I'm sorry for the front end of that.
1: No problem. Jarrett Renshaw, national energy reporter for Reuters. We'll have more reaction to that story as the week goes along. Stay with us on AOA.
3: plus broad spectrum equal healthy fun in the sun. Visit www.fda.gov sunscreen for more information. A message from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration.
4: I'm here to tell you that your options for getting out of debt have never been better. How do I know? Because I'm Howard Dvorkin, the founder of Consolidated Credit. For nearly two decades, we've helped over 5 million people just like you. And every time we help someone, they all say the same thing. Why didn't I call sooner? If you owe too much money on your credit cards and you feel that you'll never be able to pay it off, don't wait. Simply pick up the phone and find out what our Freedom Quest program can do for you. Reducing your payments by up to 50% is just the beginning, but you have to take the first step. When credit card debt is the problem, we're the solution. Call Consolidated Credit now. As soon as you call, the hard
5: part is over call consolidated credit now 1-800-489-7204 1-800-489-7204 that's 1-800-489-7204 5701 Sunrise Boulevard Fort Lauderdale Florida licensed debt management service provider Vermont and New York banking departments Maryland 49 Oregon DM eight zero zero three one.
0: information farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams.
1: Welcome back in. Thanks to Jarrett Renshaw with Reuters for joining us. He was traveling, cell phone, not always the best uh, uh, line, but uh, hopefully you were able to understand what he was saying as he was sharing his uh, latest reporting with us that uh, EPA has been granting these waivers, these RFS waivers, uh, sometimes Against the recommendation of the Department of Energy, even though Administrator Pruitt has been saying these decisions are made uh, in conjunction with uh, the Department of Energy, Uh, sometimes uh, he's granting them, even if they're saying uh, don't, or if they're saying, you know, do a partial exemption, he's giving full. Uh, So uh, this is new reporting. We're going to get a lot of reaction to this uh, from the renewable fuels industry throughout this week want to focus in now on a real issue for soybean growers that's been around for some time, soybean cyst nematode. Uh, this is uh, something that's very damaging, very profit-robbing for uh, soybean growers and has been for some time. And uh, we have some new information or at least some reminders to pass along to soybean growers. Joining us now is Iowa State nematologist Greg Tilka. Greg, thanks for joining us.
7: Sure thing, Mike. Happy to join you.
1: Okay, so we've been battling SCN for some time and kind of thought we're getting a handle on it um, with some resistance and some new varieties, but are we um, maybe not as aware as we should be of uh, where we're at in this battle? Are our producers, our growers, in some cases uh, taking steps they think are protecting their soybean uh, crops from uh, SCN, but maybe not as much as they think they are?
7: Yeah, that's a pretty accurate portrayal of the situation. Um, Soybean cyst nematode became public enemy number one for soybean producers in the early 90s throughout the whole Midwest. And quite frankly, it became, in my opinion, too easy to manage because the seed companies did a tremendous job of bringing resistant varieties to market, and farmers simply had to do two things. Number one test their fields to find out if they had soybean cyst nematode, and if they found out they did, simply number two, they grow a resistant soybean variety, and they were back on track. And that literally was how simple it was in the decade of the 90s and in the 2000s. But there was something happening in the background, perhaps, or unbeknownst to many people, and that was that All of those resistant soybean varieties were bred from the same breeding line. So they all had the exact same set of resistance genes. And much like what would happen in a field of weeds if it was sprayed with a single herbicide active ingredient for 20 or 25 years, that's what happened with soybean cyst nematode. It was exposed to the same resistance genes for 20 or 25 years And quite frankly, the nematode became or is becoming resistant to the resistance.
1: Hmm. You know, for years, it was a matter of awareness to get soybean growers to understand uh, that uh, soybean cyst nematode might they might have that problem and didn't even know it. So there was that awareness, find out. So we kind of got over that hurdle for the most part. And as you said, they started going to uh, the resistant varieties. Mm -hmm. So now it's time for that next step in this battle then, right?
7: Yeah. Yep, we're we're entering a new era, uh, the new normal, <clears throat> if you will, and we have to have a new attitude to manage SCN. And the the new analogy that I'm using is it's high blood pressure for soybeans. So the analogy in human health, high blood pressure, you find out you have it, you may not know you have it, but when you find out you've got it, it's not a take one pill and you're done, or take one pill for the rest of your life and you're done. It's multiple things you have to do combined. You have to take medicine, you should exercise, you should reduce salt intake, you should lose weight, you should stop drinking alcohol, all those things. And unfortunately, that's what we need to do with soybean cyst nematode now. It's not as simple as just taking a pill or planting a resistant soybean. So farmers need to take an integrated approach. Um, We still have to use resistant soybeans. Um, most of them have the common source of resistance called PI-88788. So we have to rely on those, but farmers should seek out the other type of resistance as well, which is called Peking resistance. And then depending on where the farmers farm, we want them certainly to rotate to non-host crops like corn and small grains and so forth. And then now there are uh, an assortment of new seed treatments that offer protection for nematode. So we have to broaden our approach to managing soybean cyst nematode. And then just like high blood pressure, you have to monitor it over time. Farmers need to start monitoring their numbers in the soil, not maybe every year, but every second or third soybean crop to keep hold of what's happening in their fields.
1: So the good news is we we do have tools to fight SCN?
7: Yes, and, and I like your approach. That the good news is this is not a death sentence. The bad news is it's not as simple as it used to be and all of us need to become more active in managing soybean cyst nematode. It was just very easy for 20 years and now it's not quite as easy. So of course we have banded together, we have a new national project funded by the Soybean Checkoff called the SCN Coalition, and the, the catchphrase is, take the test to beat the pest, and what's your number? And so it's still about testing fields and knowing what your egg numbers are, and then monitoring that as you use the three options for management, which are resistant soybeans, non-host crops, and seed treatments.
1: We're talking with Greg Tilka, nematologist at Iowa State University about soybean cyst nematode. Greg, I can remember years ago uh, doing interviews about SCN and we were talking about uh, the hidden profit robber, uh, the, the yield loss that the uh, soybean growers were experiencing without even really knowing why or, or what was causing it. Do we have an idea how much uh, uh, damage can be done by soybean cyst nematode, how much can be lost?
7: Well, that's a a good question, Mike, and it's a hard one to answer with science because soybeans are grown over so many millions of acres uh, in the U.S. Um, but in terms of percentages, uh, in a year where there would be adequate or even excess rainfall, um, the yield loss would be much less, maybe a few percent, up to 5 or 10%. But in very hot, dry growing seasons, the yield loss literally could be 50 percent, and so I don't think it's unreasonable in general terms to think that this is costing Iowa or Midwestern, let's say Midwestern soybean farmers, hundreds of millions of dollars in lost profits, and we used to be able to recover or prevent a lot of that loss with the resistant soybeans, but that's slipping away from us, so we're enduring more losses now due to this nasty pest
1: so there's a the message don't have a false sense of security because you are planting an SCN resistant variety you may still be having SCN damage so what should growers do again Greg?
7: Well again I like this analogy I use in teaching I like to draw parallels with human health think of it as high blood pressure so farmers with soybean cyst nematode number one it's not a death sentence but number two you have to exert some energy and actively manage it using resistant soybeans and seeking out those with different sources of resistance growing non-host crops using nematode protected seed treatments in a integrated management approach to control this thing.
1: Do growers that plant continuous soybeans are they more than at risk for SCN?
7: Oh yes uh, without a doubt the the nematode it's pretty simple it's temperature-driven, so you don't get as much activity in cool soils as, as, as warm soils. It loves dry soils. And then it's just doing its thing on the roots of soybeans any time soybeans are grown. So two years of soybeans in a row would be heaven for soybean cyst nematode, without a doubt. On the flip side, a year of non-soybeans, such as corn, could reduce numbers by 20 or 30 or even up to 50%. So that could be that big of a difference.
1: And if, if farmers take these proper steps, can they expect control of SCN then?
7: I think they can, and I think things will improve moving forward. I think the seed companies realize the desperate need for more varieties with the second type of resistance. There's lots of activity in the seed treatment world to provide more protection on the seed coat through seed treatments. So I think things are going to get better. Um, and so it really isn't a death sentence but it we have to kind of ratchet up our, uh, our efforts in managing this thing. It's not as easy as it used to be.
1: Yeah, it just reminds us that uh, in crop production and the challenges uh, farmers face, it's an ongoing battle uh, yeah. because it, there's always a reaction to an action, right? In yep. this case, a, a resistance develops, and you have to make yep. some changes.
7: Yeah, very good. I, I think of it as Mother Nature never takes a day off, and so we can't either.
1: Yep. All right, Greg, uh, good information. Thanks for passing it along. We appreciate it. Yep.
7: Thank you, Mike. I enjoyed talking to you.
1: Uh, Greg Tilka, Iowa State Nematologist. Uh, again. I Um, soybean cyst nematode you may be planting a resistant variety but may still have scn as resistance has developed you need to check that out all right coming up next we're going to talk with phil brasher with agripulse get the latest on uh, the senate farm bill and what's happening with uh, immigration in the house lots to talk about stay with us on aoa Adams on agriculture
6: Time now for a market check here on Adams on agriculture. I'm Rusty Halverson for the American Ag Network. Grain and soybean futures mixed on Tuesday. After starting the week with a sell-off, some excessive rainfall in the Midwest and Plains is helping attract a little bit of buying interest, according to the Wire Talk on this Tuesday. Domestic crops, though, still in very good shape. Overall conditions for the nation's corn and soybeans holding mostly steady last week. Corn Good to excellent rating, down a point seventy seven percent, good to excellent, still the highest rating since nineteen ninety-nine. Soybeans, good to excellent rating, holding steady seventy-three percent last week. In the weather forecast for the Western Corn Belt, late to moderate showers expected in eastern and southern areas today into tonight. In the eastern corn belt, scattered showers and thunderstorms seen today. And tonight, too, in the Northern Plains. A few light to locally moderate showers may occur today or during tonight. On the charts, December new crop corn sees a ceiling at 380 and a half. Nearby support lies at 369. New crop November soybeans are racing intraday gains to close lower on Monday. We've been trending in a mix on this Tuesday. Yesterday's high at 920 and a half is new resistance. We see support at 864 and a half. Livestock at the Merck in live cattle futures. We are trending in a narrow mix, 32 cents on either side of steady on this Tuesday. A narrow mix in feeder cattle. Most cash cattle market watchers expect a quiet Tuesday in the central and southern plains. Lean hog futures trending 75 to $1.70 higher. The Dow up 59 points. August crude oil in New York up 50 cents. You're listening to Adams on Agriculture. I'm Rusty Halverson for the American Ag Network.
0: information america's farmers and ranchers need to know adams on agriculture now back to mike adams
1: welcome back while we're watching the the Senate for action on the farm bill, they're they're moving along, but they're they trying to get it done quickly. And how quickly can they get it done is the question. We're going to talk with Phil Brasher now with AgriPulse Communications. Phil, thanks for joining us. They, they cleared one hurdle last night, right?
8: They did. It was a uh, procedural motion. Uh, <laughs> this gets complicated. But it was a procedural motion to take up uh, take up the bill, a closure motion they call it. And we're now in a period of 30 hours, and uh, before we have a vote to actually take up to proceed to the bill, uh, that could get shortened. Uh, we could be uh, uh, waiting till tomorrow until we uh, have a vote on that. Actually, um, uh, that vote to actually proceed to the bill, and then we actually start debating the bill.
1: Okay. It. It gets confusing because you start getting too deep into the weeds on uh, on procedures within within the Senate. But basically, uh, it sounds like Chairman Pat Roberts is trying to take some steps to keep this from getting bogged down in the amendment process.
8: Uh, to keep it from getting bogged down, but also to uh, keep uh, off some uh, amendments uh, that would uh, that target particularly crop insurance Um There are a couple of amendments uh, out there floating around. They're expected to be uh, filed, haven't been filed yet. Uh, uh, One to put a means test on crop insurance, another one that uh, would cap uh, the amount of premium subsidies that any one uh, producer could uh, uh, receive. Uh, And there will be some other uh, other amendments as well. There is an effort to the committee, uh, the leaders of the committee, are working with the uh, Senate leadership uh, to uh, to restrict the number of amendments as, as, uh, as far as possible.
1: And it looks like there's also some that, that want to push for checkoff reform. There's some that, that want right. uh, some the some amendments on conservation and animal rights. So, uh, yeah, even though it looks to go a lot smoother in the Senate than it did in the House, there are a lot of different ways it could get off track, too.
8: Right, and that uh, really depends on uh, how, uh, how strictly they limit, uh, they limit the uh, amendment process. There are about 16 amendments that have been, which is not really that many, that have been filed so far as of this morning. Uh, but there will be many more coming in. Uh, I suspect there will be a fairly small number that are actually uh, made, in, made in order, and we may not know what that list is until at uh, least tomorrow.
1: So, Chairman Roberts has repeatedly said he wants this passed before their Fourth of July recess. Um, that's a, that's ambitious. Do you think they can get it done this week?
8: Uh, absolutely, because they'll be gone all next week. They will get they will get it done. Um, it's uh, that will that's important because it'll allow the House and the Senate to actually start negotiations on a final version of this bill next month. So. Uh, they will get this. They will get this bill out of the Senate, probably with a limited amount of debate on amendments. Um, I would think uh, Thursday, because the senators are going to uh, really going to want to get out of town. So I would look for Thursday um, the bill to pass, and then in July we can uh, start seeing uh, start seeing negotiations begin.
1: And those should be very interesting, given the differences that uh, will be between the House and Senate bills.
8: Right. There are a number of uh, some of the biggest differences are in how they, uh, how they decided to fund programs that uh, are running out of money after September 30th when the 2014 Farm Bill expires. They had, they had to come up with money. Uh, they had different priorities in the House and the Senate, and they had uh, they targeted different programs for cuts in order to fund their priorities. And they're very different between the two bills, and uh, they're going to have to sort through those, come up with compromises on uh, where they get the money and where they put it.
1: So we expect that vote in the Senate on the farm bill this week. We're talking with Phil Brasher with AgriPulse Communications. Phil, I asked you the other day about uh, what you were hearing concerning Uh, the president's plan or wish to kind of reorganize some uh, things uh, and including moving snap away from USDA and moving to to health and human services. And uh, I guess um, Chairman Roberts was asked about what he thought about it. And he just said, it's not going to happen. We're not going to do it. He was very clear about (laughs) it. So obviously it's it's running into some pretty strong headwinds already.
9: Like I say,
8: there was not much interest before this came out. There was, you know, leaks. Uh, there have been leaks about it uh, for a couple of weeks. There was not much. There was no buzz on Capitol Hill about it, and there's been none since. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it's uh, it pretty much landed with a big thud.
1: So we'll we'll watch because the president will probably keep pushing it, but uh, it looks like a lot of people are lined up to push back. All right, let's look over on the House. Are they anywhere with with immigration? What are they going to do?
9: Well,
8: uh, as you know, they, they voted on a bill last week that, that the hardline conservatives uh, liked. It, it failed. Uh, they then tried to bring up a, what they, uh, a compromise, a compromise between Republicans that uh, Democrats are not on board with any of this. Uh, they couldn't, couldn't get the votes. They were struggling uh, you know, last, uh, at the end of last week. They decided to put it over, put the debate over to this week. Uh, it looks like now they are going to add some provisions—a mandatory E-Verify uh, provision—that would require all employ all employers to start using uh, this E-Verify system to check the legal status of their workers. This is something that uh, farm groups are absolutely opposed to, unless there's some um, also a, a, an effort to address all of the workers that they now have that are, you know, in the country illegally. Um, Obviously, it's known that they're in the country illegally, even even though many of them have papers. Um, Also included in the bill would be uh, some provisions for a new uh, ag guest worker program. Uh, Most of this was taken out of the bill that was defeated last week. Now, it doesn't look like this bill is going to pass either, but the uh, the House may well vote on it in the next couple of days.
1: So are we apt to get anything done from an ag labor standpoint anytime soon, or is that going to be pushed down the road, it sounds like?
8: Well, uh, the bottom line is it's ultimately going to almost certainly be pushed down the road. Uh, it's just it is very difficult to address. Farm labor issues outside of a broad agreement on immigration, because uh, uh, members of Congress and Democrats, uh, uh, in particular, uh, don't want to address want to address their priorities before they address the needs of agriculture. Now, with all of that said, uh, the House Republican leadership has promised a separate debate in July on on uh, an ag uh, worker bill a separate ag worker bill that would probably be married with uh, mandatory e-verify now even if that bill passes it probably is going nowhere in the senate um, but it will give uh, house republicans a chance to to vote on uh, addressing farm labor issues. Uh, we still don't know what exactly will be in that bill, um, and it will get um, be a chance for them to put Democrats on the record on the issue as well. But ult- ultimately will probably not result in actual legislation coming out of Congress.
1: Wow, that's so frustrating. We get so much of this, uh, you know, um, where they go through all the uh, the Pretense of uh, that they're doing something on an issue, knowing all along almost that nothing's going to get done on it. It just—it's—it's it's frustrating that the, we go through this and it, it looks like you know they try to make a public attempt that they're doing something, but in the end, nothing happens.
8: Uh, that's so much of the way things are working right now. Uh, it's all uh, the House Republicans, in particular, very focused on. The November elections and trying to retain control of the House. Uh, their, their hold on the House is uh, very precarious uh, when you look at, uh, dig down into the polls in and various, uh, various districts, swing districts. Uh, but that's so much of what they're doing right now is uh, trying to generate enthusiasm from the Republican base and uh, uh, put Democrats, uh, vulnerable Democrats, um, uh, on the spot.
1: All right, Phil, it, it will be interesting to see this play out. Uh, so we, we think uh, that Senate vote will come this week, and if they get that bill passed and right. on to conference, uh, it'll be interesting. You think uh, ranking member in the House Act Committee, Colin Peterson, uh, he's probably going to like a lot more about that Senate bill than he does the House bill, right?
8: He is, as well as many of the Democrats on, on the committee. There are um, there are a lot of priorities for Democrats in terms of local agriculture, in terms of uh, organic agriculture research that are in the Senate bill that Democrats on the House Agriculture Committee really like. Uh, so, uh, yes, and uh, Colin, Colin Peterson, the one thing he is not going to like about the Senate bill is it does not give the increase to the Conservation Reserve Program that he wants, and that is in the House in the House bill. So that's, that's a big uh, Um, That's a big difference between the two bills and one where Peterson is going to want to fight for what's in the
5: House bill.
0: brought to you by common ground alliance
4: i'm here to tell you that your options for getting out of debt have never been better how do i know because i'm howard devorkin the founder of consolidated credit for nearly two decades we've helped over five million people just like you and every time we help someone they all say the same thing why didn't i call sooner if you owe too much money on your credit cards and you feel that you'll never be able to pay it off the
5: hard part is over. Call Consolidated Credit now. 1 800 489 7204. 1 800 489 7204. That's 1 800 489 7204. 5701 Sunrise Boulevard, Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Licensed Debt Management Service Provider, Vermont and New York Banking Departments, Maryland 49 Oregon dm 31
0: Reason number 12 why you should own a Thermospas hot tub, they require no attachment to your home's plumbing. Thanks to the Thermospas unique built-in thermofiltration system that filters the water an incredible 144 times a day, you simply fill it with a garden hose and your water stays crystal clear with very little maintenance. Call to receive a free DVD and brochure and find out how you can own a Thermospas hot tub for only a few dollars a day. Right now, they're offering 0% APR financing with approved credit and a $1,000 savings coupon, including free delivery, free chemicals, and a cash discount. And with models starting at $4,995, there will never be a better time to own a Thermospas hot tub. So call now and ask about this limited-time offer. Call Thermospas today at 800-991-5852 for your free DVD and brochure. That's 800-991-5852. Thermospas, hot tubs designed to improve your life. Call 800 991 5852 today to take advantage of 0% APR financing. (laughs) All right, guys, we're ready for our four season sunroom, and Daddy's gonna get a rec room with refreshments.
3: Oh no, we'll be sleeping under the stars. Mom, what about the one with, you know, the fun? Nice try, little bro. It's a gym. My gym. Hey, Grandma's getting her Four Seasons garden room. Weather tight and still like being outdoors. Maybe a living room. Oh no, wait, a family hub.
0: Yeah!
3: And you have to reapply sunscreen every 2 hours. Remember, SPF plus broad spectrum equals healthy fun in the sun. Visit www.fda.gov/sunscreen for more information. A message from the U.S. Food and Drug
0: Administration. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams.
1: Welcome back. A lot going on. Uh, on the Senate floor, Senate Ag Committee Chair Pat Roberts saying we must provide certainty and predictability in this uncertain environment. Talking about the Farm Bill, he says this is the best possible bill under the circumstances. So the trade situation certainly uh, giving even more Uh, importance to the Farm Bill and and perhaps a push towards getting it passed. Meanwhile, more than 60 companies and organizations representing American dairy farmers and cheesemakers have commended President Trump for his efforts on equitable trade and for insisting that Canada halt its market-distorting dairy practices. But at the same time, the companies are urging the administration to reconsider its imposition of new tariffs on Mexico in light of that country's constructive engagement in NAFTA negotiations and the harm, they say, that Mexico's retaliatory tariffs will have on U.S. dairy uh, and its trade and with its most uh, reliable market, which is Mexico. So there's a lot going on now. I want to get some perspective from someone who's been in these uh, skirmishes before, former Secretary of Agriculture, former Nebraska Senator Mike Johans. Mr. Secretary, thanks for joining us.
9: Thank you. Good to be with you.
1: All right, so with all this going on, uh, first, I want to get your thoughts on where we are with trade, uh, the tariffs and the retaliation, the the path we seemingly are, are, are going down now. What are your concerns with this?
9: Well, there's trade battles everywhere. And, uh, uh, Mike, to start out with, uh, you need only look at the price of corn and soybeans, and, and uh, that will tell you what's going on. Uh, you know, a few weeks ago, uh, a couple months ago, for sure, we thought we were seeing some strength in, in those markets. Uh, now, corn is trading around 350, soybeans uh, under nine dollars. So, that, that tells the story. Uh, and there's just trade disputes just kind of erupting everywhere. NAFTA is very important, and here we're in a battle with uh, Mexico and Canada. Um, China, uh, very, very important for a lot of ag commodities. Soybeans would probably be top of that list. And I just think this has some ways to go before it plays out.
1: If you were still in the Senate or if you were still at USDA, what would you be saying to this administration on their trade policies?
9: I think where we have uh, fallen short for many, many years is enforcement. Um, it's it's always something that's hard to find money for. Um, it's hard to build the staff necessary to get the enforcement done at USTR. And, and I think, consequently, countries looked at our lack of enforcement and said, well, we can do things here and push the envelope. So uh, I really do think even if this um, were to work out uh, today, I, I still think you have to put some some muscle behind the enforcement piece of this because a trade agreement is only going to be as strong as the enforcement piece and I think that's where we came up short for a lot of years
1: president Trump saying he's taken this tough action on China because uh, of things like uh, you know intellectual properties and other areas he feels that China's uh, taking advantage of us or has an upper hand on some things and wants to correct it agriculture kind of getting caught uh, in in is uh, bearing the brunt of the retaliation in the in the quest for this overall improvement in trade. Is there any way to avoid agriculture getting hurt in the short term to get a longer-term uh, uh, improvement in the trade situation?
9: Well, the president himself and Sonny Perdue, um, the Secretary of Agriculture now, have both said we're, we're going to endeavor to hold agriculture harmless, hold our farmers harmless. Uh, I've yet to see what that looks like, Uh, and I must admit, uh, I look at prices and I ask myself, uh, how do you get to a point where you can mitigate against this drop in uh, the value of a bushel of corn or soybeans? And and, uh, therein lies the problem. I just think agriculture is in the crosshairs. So my hope is that the administration is doing everything they can to keep lines of communication open and is willing to work with China, uh, the European Union, uh, Canada, um, Mexico, and work through these issues. Uh, I, that's the only thing I see that is going to bring uh, some light at the end of this tunnel is uh, we get an agreement that is probably not perfect but good enough for both sides.
1: What well, puts more importance on the farm bill. Uh, what are your thoughts on uh, what's going on now in your former chamber, the Senate, uh, as they look to get a farm bill passed this week?
9: You know, I, I like what I see from uh, Pat Roberts and Debbie Stabenow. Of course, Pat's the, uh, the uh, chair and Debbie is the ranking member they have a good working relationship. They know the pressure is on. They know the spotlight is on them to deliver a farm bill. It came out of committee 20 to 1. Uh, The only negative vote was uh, Chuck Grassley, and it's not because he's against the farm bill. He just didn't think the payment limitations were strong enough. I think it goes to the Senate floor with a lot of momentum. They'll have to work through amendments, and hopefully they can get that done. But I think when it's all said and done, they will have a strong vote in the Senate. I I wouldn't be surprised if this farm bill gets 80 votes plus uh, in the Senate. If that's the case, I think it builds momentum going into a conference with the House to get a bill done. So I was pretty pessimistic about this six weeks ago. I'm much more optimistic just simply because the Senate has kind of grabbed a hold now, and we do have a House bill that we can conference. So, I think it's just a, it's looking more likely that we can get a farm bill done this year.
1: Yeah, we need something positive uh, for sure. Mr. Secretary, always good to talk with you. Thank you for your perspective.
9: Absolutely. Take care.
1: Okay. Look forward to talking with you again soon. Mike Johans, former Secretary of Agriculture, former senator from Nebraska. All right, so a lot of things happening tomorrow. Bob Danine with Renewable Fuels Association will join us. His reaction to the uh, story we heard from uh, Jarrett Renshaw with Reuters earlier about uh, EPA's approach to these RFS waivers and uh, more on the farm bill and a lot of other issues happening as well. Stay with us right here on AOA, Adams on Agriculture.